What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Aaron Sedman, president of IPC, co-president, Sony Nonfiction. Okay, I'm doing this intro a little different than I normally do. I usually do them after I've already recorded the episodes, but here I am in an empty conference room, and I'm waiting for Aaron to walk in the door any second. He was crowned a Hall of Famer last night by Real Scream. There was a cocktail party afterwards. It was a big weekend for him and his partner, Eli Holzman. And I understand that Aaron, we, we've been friends for years, so I should, you know, I should, I should disclose that from the top. But I understand that in a, in a friendly way, Aaron is coming in hot. He's coming into this interview hot. He has uh, some issues with how long it's taken for him to get here here on the podcast, I should say, how long it took me to ask him to come on the podcast. So we'll see how early into this episode he brings this up. But I could not be prouder of him. Uh, the story of what him and Eli have done over the last seven years is incredible. Leaving all three, forming IPC, then IPC being acquired by Core Media, the studio behind So You Think You Can Dance and American Idol. And then Sony ends up buying what is the new company, Industrial. And now Aaron Sedman, under his belt, has a portfolio of documentaries and shows spanning all forms of genres, unlike anybody else in the business. He is a true executor, a true artist, but also an incredible room general, as I say, when it comes to pitching shows. And I'm excited to have him on. So any minute, he's about to walk in the door. Let's see how this goes. This is my sit down with Aaron Sedman. I hope you enjoy it. All right, he's a Hall of Famer. There was a party last night in his and Eli's honor. How are you feeling this morning, Aaron Sedman? And I mean that in more ways than one. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling... Uh, Ever so slightly fatigued, but I'm feeling uh, gratified and humbled by the events and the induction ceremony and really the outpouring of love and, and um, you know, uh, compliments, you know, that, that you don't usually receive in that sort of condensed way. So um, it, w- it was a special night. What's been the conversation between you and Eli, like, say, after, after the ceremony yesterday? After you guys gave your your speech, the induction speech, were you guys able to like? Have you guys had that moment yet to like reflect? Just the we two had of that moment. Yeah, we had that moment last night at the end of our party, at the end of IPC's party at around, I don't know, it was close to midnight, and we had been there for maybe four hours, and we were sitting on the couch together, and everyone's sort of clearing out, and. Devin Hammonds, uh, a wonderfully talented executive who works with us, saw that we were trying to have a moment and let and said, "Oh, you're having a moment," and like walked away and stopped, stopped chewing our ear off. And we, I don't know, you know, Jimmy was um, what what was really interesting about the induction ceremony is a lot of our friends and longtime colleagues came out and supported and said wonderfully nice things to us. And that's always gratifying to hear. But a lot of strangers from real screen uh, that were just attending the conference that we didn't know, or maybe we met once seven years ago, were coming up to us and saying really nice things. And, and in some ways that meant a little bit more, you know, that sort of signals that maybe maybe you're making an impact beyond your immediate surroundings and that was really special and we were talking Eli and I at the end of the night kind of looked at each other and sort of wondered about you know our partnership and and how special it's been and what a crazy adventure and journey it's been and uh and I guess we did a a a tiny bit of patting each other on the back um, but this all sounds incredibly self-aggrandizing, so we're going to have to move on to a different topic and or edit this part out of the podcast. No, well, okay, here's, maybe here's a nice palate cleanser. You did fill me in last night, and to give insight into the dynamic between you two, you gave me a little insight into what Eli told you after you guys gave your speech, if people want to know how you guys communicate with each other. What, oh, man. What, um, he, what did he say to you? This is so bad that you're bringing it up. Um, Eli um, 
Eli turns to me. It's like 20 minutes after we got off stage, and he said, uh, you know I got the biggest laugh. <laughs> it was very important to him. There were only like two or three jokes in our acceptance speech, but uh, he felt that his uh, quotation from The Godfather uh, got the biggest laugh, and he wanted to make sure that I was aware that he had landed that. Um, he's ve- it's very important to him to be seen as comedically uh, superior to um to my efforts and well well i will say if we're keeping score which cl- clearly eli is you got the bigger laughs at the cocktail party with your welcome speech you did so i think off the cuff after a couple of drinks uh he there, there, there's no competition really <laughs> uh he, he doesn't stand a chance but i think with uh written remarks uh he he's really good at uh uh landing uh, landing a joke and he wanted to make sure i was aware of that you should or or, or you shouldn't because it would be torturous and awful for you but you should sit in on one of our staff meetings because it's sort of the comedy olympics and it's always eli versus aaron and that poor staff slash hostage uh <laughs> audience that has to listen to that and fake laugh because they all work for us that's really a treat to see. So drop in uh, on a Tuesday morning and you can see what the, the comedy competition is like. All right. So I'm sorry it took you so long to get on the podcast. Do we need to address this? Yeah, I think we need to talk about Because I'd like I mean, to get this out of the way. So when did I you feel st- like otherwise it's just going to be hanging over. When did you start this podcast? Oh. Let's let's st- let's let's start with how many? <laughs> seven years? Eight years? Something like that. It was it was shortly after I came to all three and I knew I needed to like establish myself. Shortly after you came to all three. Um, yes. W- right. A- after someone personally recruited you to come and work at all three. Someone whose name uh, is very similar to Aaron Sedman, who personally recruited you to come and run one of the all three companies. Yes. Then you started this podcast. And then you had, so that was, it was probably nine, eight or nine years ago? Eight, eight-ish probably, yeah. yeah. Sure, okay. And you've had what, 2,400 people on this podcast since that time? 50-something. And you've had, I think you've had a couple people on twice? No, well. Sure. Spicer just did these recap episodes, which to me are not like pure episodes. And I love Brian, and he's yeah. a brilliant agent, but you did technically have him on more than once. And in that interim, Jimmy... I have been on six or seven different podcasts in and around the business of unscripted television. Not only that, in this amount of time, you have also had a Hall of Fame career doing Hall of Fame things during this time. It's like, who do I have to sleep with to get on Jimmy Fox's podcast? And I hope the answer isn't Jimmy Fox. And by the way, I was even on uh, uh, an Australian podcast, which was ostensibly supposed to be about Selena plus chef, but I get on this podcast. He's pulled up my entire IMDB. He's asking me questions about being a challenge producer on a VH1 show from 2007. Clearly I'm, I'm adored and loved uh, down under, but I can't seem to get a spot on your podcast. So I would just like to say begrudgingly, thank you for having me finally <laughs> on your podcast. Well, that was, well, that was painless. Uh, no, I uh, here's. By the way, my corporate publicist just threw up in his mouth for having <laughs> offended the the podcast host of the podcast I've been no, invited to no, be on. No offense, I, I it's well deserved. I, honestly, I think when I first thought to ask you on, I knew you had just been on like another reality TV uh, podcast, so I didn't think to ask you. But also, had I known you actually would want to do it, I would have asked you way sooner. You don't understand how many people I ask see this as a great inconvenience. And there's and there's still people that refuse. Well, you're you're not you're not tapping into the more narcissistic community of producers because the idea of you know talking about myself and my career for an hour is you know irresistible. Well, well, it's, well speaking of types of producers, I mean, you can't relate to this because you've never not sold a pitch. But for me, it was probably my fear of rejection. As just a blue collar. I love how you've like turned this back onto your, like you're making yourself the victim. You're like, I've not been invited to be on your podcast for eight years, but somehow you're the aggrieved party here that we should all feel bad for. I'm so sorry that your crippling fear of rejection prevented you from asking me to attend, but I am Thank also glad you. that you were able to work through those emotions and that we're finally sitting here together. Thank you for that. You are welcome. Do you remember where the recruitment lunch was? It, I was probably in Culver City 
because I was working at Studio Lambert and I tried to put all the lunches in Culver City. It might have been, it's either going to be Akasha or public school. It was public school. Wow. It was public school. 50-50 shot. We had lunch. Do you remember where our lunch was? I mean, this is going to be another 50-50 shot considering the geography of the all three office. Okay. Do you remember where our lunch was when you were on your way out of all three and we went and had lunch and you like talked me through islands it was islands wow yeah by the way it's a food desert over there so it's actually it's like that or buffalo wild wings so that's, that's what i'm saying yeah. it was 50 50 where we yeah. might have lunch but i like remember like, i remember the recruitment lunch i think cameron caddison had set us up I credit was... credit to cameron caddison he's like do you know jimmy fox because you should really know jimmy fox if you're hiring a bunch of people at all three and you sat with me and i told you like the story of like i was taking meetings and looking and leaving electus and basically the way you described it was we need people that can that can sell. You're like, we need people that can sell and have ideas. He's like, you were like, we have the best in class execution team here, a current team, all the infrastructure to take off your hands and like run with these shows. We, but we need people that are idea people that we just want to like develop with and have fun with. Yeah. And I was like, well, who's going to say no to that? Well, but, you were a perfect fit, honestly. But you, then you guys were out. I want to say... God, you guys were out like within like 18 months, I well, think. Well, as soon as you got in there and we realized what a giant prick you were, it was really, our days were numbered. You know, we had to get out. Um, no, look, we had, you know, the, all three sold to Discovery and Liberty Global and, and sort of the, 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 the structure of the company changed a little bit. And um, I think it was also just time. You know, I, 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 had st I had started at that company shortly after Eli Holzman opened that U.S. office with Stephen Lambert. And with Undercover Boss, really just grew and grew and grew that company. And then once we expanded into all three Media America, you know, we had been on that ride for six or seven years at that yeah. point. Uh, you know, for Eli, probably seven or eight. Mm. So I think it just felt like it was a good moment to exit we were actually locking picture on a documentary feature called the seven five that's right in the all three media offices kind of skipping you know skipping out on the conference call to prepare for the conference call for the notes call with the network that you didn't want to do in the first place and sneaking into an edit bay to lock picture on this film that we had been working on for three years and turning to each other and having a moment realizing hey this is a little bit more fun than than our day jobs um, should we leave? Should we go? Should we start our own thing and see if we can do this on our own? And that was really the inspiration for, for launching and starting IPC in 2016. And who would end up buying that film? Uh, that we sold that film first. We, you know, the remake rights were, right. were, 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 were more popular initially than the documentary. So we sold the remake rights first to Sony. That's right. I was looking for the full circle. There you, you know, go. Like, yeah. Right. In 20, that was the end of 2014. And in fact, the, the announcement, uh, for the purchase of those remake rights is in the same article as the Sony hack by North Korea. Oh my God. It got reported on the same day in the same <laughs> article. It was, it was sort of a chaotic news moment for, for Sony. So we, our, our, our documentary sale got buried a little bit by, by the infamous Sony hack. But yeah, that was Sony that purchased those rights. Well, before we get into like the creation of IPC, I just want to go along the, the timeline for a second here. Well, let's start a little earlier. And I don't want to give Bob and Harvey Weinstein too much mentioned on the show for obvious reasons, but please don't. You did get a start at Miramax, correct? And is, I guess, just enough to tell me what was the interview process like of getting the job at Miramax? Because at this time, Miramax is being an assistant at Miramax in New York is probably one of the most sought after assistant jobs, probably in the business if you want to be a film executive one day, right? How did you get that job and get in front of them, and what was the interview process like? Let's let's just keep it at that. Wow, I haven't been asked that question in a long time. Um, I, I actually landed an internship at Robert De Niro's Tribeca Productions initially. Oh this is really where the story begins, through an old summer camp counselor connection. Um, I remember going in for the interview for that internship, and the woman that was interviewing me uh, is in a very accomplished uh, scripted showrunner named Jenny Connor. Back then, she was a junior creative executive for Tribeca Productions, 
and her boyfriend and I were were summer camp uh, counselors together at this like left wing Jewish socialist Zionist Sh- summer camp. True story. Shout it out. Shout it out. What's the name of this camp? Uh, Habunim Dror Camp Mosheva. That lived up to the expectation. You'll right have there. to subtitle that for the viewers. Uh, it was based on the idea of a kibbutz. It was like a socialist commune. We kind of, you know, we grew our own vegetables and served our own food and cleaned our own bathrooms. I am not joking. Uh, and uh, there was a there was a counselor there named Ben Cooley, who went on to have a career in the music business. He was Beck's tour manager and uh, and eventually ran Black and White for for Mike White and Jack Black when they had their shingle. Uh, uh, several years ago, uh, and his girlfriend and later wife uh, was a woman named Jenny Connor, and uh, I was advised, hey, hit her up for an internship if you're trying to break into the film business. I hadn't gone to film school. I didn't know anyone in the business. I wanted to move to New York City to pursue independent film, so I'm in New York. I know no one except for this, you know, except for the the girlfriend of my former camp counselor colleague. So this internship comes after you graduate college, or this correct? Is- I graduate. I move to New York. I'm subletting an apartment. I'm waking up every day at eight a.m. How making- bad is this apartment? It's not that. It's 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 actually not that bad. Okay. The, the really bad apartment was the first one. Was two months later when okay. I finally had to go live on my own, and I moved to a rat-infested tenement building on East Third Street with no closets, by the way, <laughs> uh, which was on top of a electronic um, dance music record store, oh and God. you could hear this like. Like thump, like the like back when you had telephones, they would like the phone would like rock in the cradle to the beat of whatever they were playing, and I felt like a, a lab rat uh, in an experiment. Um, those were great days. Um, so I go into this interview, and I, you know, this is sort of pre-internet, just to date myself. I'm Generation X. It was 1996, and I went into the interview. Um, thinking I knew everything there is to know about Tribeca Productions. And Jenny says to me, she's sort of reviewing my various tasks and responsibilities, what they might be. You'll have to, you know, make photocopies of scripts and you'll have to run some errands every now and then. Maybe you'll do coverage on a book or a screenplay. And once in a while, you might have to run an errand for Bob. And I must have had a look on my face like I didn't know what she was talking about because I didn't. And she noticed that. She said, oh, I'm sorry. By Bob, I meant Robert De Niro. Maybe I should have explained that to you, but this is his production company. So talk about being unprepared. For you you didn't know that the company was... I didn't know it was Robert De Niro's production company. And I thought in that instance, I had blown the interview and there was no way I was getting that interview. No, I think that probably worked for you, Aaron, because they probably didn't want a bunch of fanboys quoting taxi taxi driver lines in the office. No, it did it did not help me at all to not know that it was Robert De Niro's <laughs> production company that I was interviewing for. But what saved me was we then started talking about the summer camp. And Jenny Connor had visited on a visitor's day, and she thought the camp was so cool and creative and interesting. And she's like, anyone that went to this camp, I just love that what you guys do is so special and interesting and gave me the internship pretty much right on the spot. And I just I learned an important lesson about preparing for job interviews going forward. Right, so how does that get you to the Weinsteins, though? So you hear about an opening on a desk? So it's in the same building. The Tribeca Film Center, 370, the legendary Tribeca Film Center, 375 Greenwich Street, down in in Tribeca, New York. And I was looking for, you know, I'm an unpaid intern at Tribeca Productions, and and I'm a college graduate with a fancy degree from the University of Michigan in political science, and I need money. I need to earn money, and Jenny knew that, and she had heard about an opening to be Merrill Poster's second assistant. Okay. And I went and interviewed for that. And Meryl at the time was engaged to be married. And the first assistant was interviewing me and was explaining, essentially implying that I might be doing a lot of wedding planning <laughs> as part of this job. And I'm I was a, gonna I was gonna for those that don't know, the second assistant role is always more the personal tasks. Yes. And as a 21-year-old living in the East Village, I did not feel necessarily qualified to plan this powerful Miramax executive's wedding. And I was actually scared and nervous to even take it on. But 
But more to your question, I didn't fully appreciate how special or how hard it would be to land a job at Miramax Films. Right. It was the top of the mountain in independent film at that time, maybe in all of film. This is post-Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And I didn't fully appreciate that. I was a bit naive about this the is, whole this thing. This is post-Goodwill Hunting? This is not post-Goodwill Hunting. I got a job at Miramax four months before they won their first Best Picture Oscar for The English Patient. Okay. So it was, they were you know, a, a, a phoenix on the rise. Um, but but I didn't fully appreciate how hard it would be to get a job there. So I didn't want to plan Meryl's wedding. I love Meryl, by the way, and, and we're friends today. But I was sort of scared off by that concept, didn't appreciate what the opportunity might mean, and turned it down. I told the first assistant I wanted to focus on writing, uh, and I said no to the job. And then a few months later, I get a call from Jenny Connor. And she said that there was another executive at Miramax who used to work for Merrill Poster and had heard that someone had turned down a job to be her assistant and was impressed by that and wanted to meet me. I'm not making this up. Talk about luck. You always, but you always want the people that don't want you, right? Like, isn't this a lesson in our business? Like, yes. you always want to chase the talent or chase the rights that aren't available. Play hard to get. If only I was doing it on purpose. Uh, I, I, you know, in spite of my idiocy and naivete, I got a second bite at the apple, and this time I made sure not to screw it up. And I, I didn't have to plan his wedding, but, but, <laughs> but I, I did say yes to the opportunity. And, um, and that executive is a film producer named Bobby Cohen, okay. and he really gave me my first job in the business, um, and, uh, and mentored me in those early days. And that's how I got my start at Miramax. And, in, and this is where the Eli Holzman relationship spawns from, right? Eli Holzman is an assistant to a business affairs executive at that time, and he's just a few cubicles away what, on what that third it, floor. I, it's hard for me to imagine assistant Eli. Like, it's hard for me to imagine Eli before, you know, the, the, the look and the style and the swag that we all know Eli to have now. I can't imagine him just being on the desk. He was not entirely dissimilar <laughs> as the Eli. Just imagine, a, you know. A, Did he wear a tie? He dressed up. Um, um, I, I, I believe he was wearing neckties back then. He was definitely wow. ready for prime time. You yeah. know, I, I think he was born. Uh, I think he came out of the womb with a necktie on. And he... He was all in. You know, he was the first one there and the last one to leave. Um, he is on, on, on my, I think it was my first day or my first week. I had to get a FedEx out in time. Mm. There's a lot of pressure and he's waiting up at the FedEx man's waiting up at receptionist. And I'm shipping off some film to some filmmaker. And um, Eli's second assistant uh, was helping me learn how to like print out the FedEx label. And Eli came charging down the hallway and said, hey, it's great that she's helping you out, but I need her right now. And then turned around and walked back. And that was my very first interaction with Eli Holzman. That which was, pretty much sums it up. That was the meat cute. Yeah, that was the meat cute. Uh, okay, so I know you take some detours like on your, on your paths and your careers. So... How about we talk about the first time you met Stephen Lambert? Let's talk about this. And, I, you know, Stephen Lambert, one of the legends, for those that don't know, created Wife Swap, created Undercover Boss, one of the founding fathers of the business. But I haven't talked about him a lot on this podcast for whatever reason, probably because it was too close to home being at All Three for, for nine years. Um, and I hadn't had anybody from the All Three family on, on the podcast, come to think of it. Tell me about Stephen Lambert. Tell me about just when you first started working for him how you saw him manage the networks, the ideation process with Steven. For those that don't know, like, talk me through it. Sure. Um, you know, Steven, um, yeah, one of the most, you know, one of the foremost format creators uh, of our time uh, in our business and certainly a legend in his own right. Um, Steven, I, I worked on the first season of Undercover Boss as a freelance producer, but I didn't actually meet Steven until I had joined Studio Lambert as a development and current programming executive. And we were getting ready to sell, it was sort of a spinoff idea of Undercover Boss called Be the Boss, 
which later aired on A&E. Uh, but we were, I was cutting the sizzle for, for the, the, the pitch for that show. And, you know, it was really a privilege and an honor to be able to study under Stephen Lambert and to learn how he thinks and how he approaches the development and the pitch process. Um, you know, I, I think the kinds of content that I gravitate to are less formatty by design. But to have, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more steeped in terms of my own personal passions in sort of the, the, the documentary form. But the, to, 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 that early in my career, to be able to study under someone who thought about formats in that way and to learn to, to train that muscle, that sort of format development muscle, which you really have to work on uh, to be able to do it in this business, that was a, I didn't really appreciate um, how special that, that time was and sort of the early formative years of my career in Unscripted. Well, I mean, look, I was thinking this morning as I was going through you know, the, the IMDb page, so to speak, of what you guys have done and the Studio Lambert years, all three years to the IPC years. It's like if you want to know the story of where our business has gone over the last decade, just look at the work of Aaron and Eli because you are at Studio Lambert, which later becomes all three Media America, and you guys are, you know, generating formats because that's what the business was for the most part during that boom of the reality TV business and you guys are churning these formats out and then you guys are able to somehow segue into this era of premium and as you guys segue into the era of premium so too does the business and you guys were able to make that switch and I was thinking about this on the on the way in here this morning I was thinking about how few to compliment you for a second so get ready how few producers in our business have a salesman personality and presence that you and I mean in a compliment way like your gregarious nature in a room I'm going to sell you a used watch in about five minutes but but then but also have an artistic filmmaker director brain right not everybody has the social skill personality that it takes to like package and sell shows which is a big part of our business but then also is equipped with an actual filmmaker eye you're one of the few, Aaron, period, that I know that does that. And you talk to our close friends that know you well. All of them are like, oh, yeah, I mean, eventually Aaron's just going to go full director. Like, just going to go full director, make documentaries because that's his passion. And that's, that's my retirement plan. <laughs> that's my, that's, 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 I want to make an obscure documentary feature every, you know, three to five years uh, on my way out of this business. Um, that's very kind of you to say, you know, I, would love to pretend that it was a part of some sort of grand strategy. No, like you either have it or you don't. It's, it's, you know, I, I, I kind of came into the business as a filmmaker. You know, I left Miramax films to go make a short cause I hadn't gone to film school and I wanted to, to, to really learn how to do that. And I spent a number of years directing short form, maybe a commercial or a promo. I directed a, scripted pilot for what was then Fox Television Studios for the Spike Network. This won't show up on my IMDb, by the way. And that was before I joined Studio Lambert. That was pre-Undercover Boss. In fact, the first real gig I did with Studio Lambert as a freelancer wasn't Undercover Boss. Eli hired me to direct and showrun an MTV pilot Mm. that he had sold, which was sort of a homage to John Hughes. It was sort of Freaks and Geeks, the reality show. And uh, and so I kind of came into Studio Lambert as a filmmaker, and I had been making short, for, short form content for a number of years. So when I finally learned how the unscripted business worked, and I learned specifically about the primacy of the sizzle reel, or what was emerging at that time in... 2009, 2010, as the sort of the importance of the sizzle reel, I'll admit I had an advantage. I had been making short form content as a filmmaker for a number of years. And I thought to myself, oh, no one's putting real filmmaking into this thing that's supposed to show you what the filmmaking's going to be like. So before the really the rest of the industry caught up, and now I think lots of people make great tapes 
we sort of had an advantage. We were a little bit ahead of the curve, I think, in terms of making great sizzle reels that didn't just convey the format idea, but looked great, sounded great, gave you a real visual sample of what the show might be like. And that was something I think we carried into really all of our programs. I mean, I, I think for a while before I was really selling, um, creating and selling shows and formats, I was probably more known as a maker. Mm. And I was I did more directing in the early days of Studio Lambert than I did as a freelance director, <laughs> which was such a kind of a head spin for me. I, I, I was I, Here I was an executive. I had decided to leave the freelance world, and I'm kind of out on set shooting and directing, even shooting camera in some cases. And so that was, those were some really fun early days of, of, of being in the business, but being able to kind of flex your muscles as a filmmaker. Well, let's talk about those days before we get to the formation of, of IPC. I, I, by the way, I catch Eli last night at the cocktail party. I'm like, you know, Aaron's going to do the podcast uh, tomorrow morning. He's like, oh, it's great. I'm like, what should I ask him about? Like, is any inside oh, tip that you want me to hit? Oh boy. He, Completely caught me off guard with like the one the one thing he referenced. He's like, "Oh yeah, have him tell you about uh, the show we did on a cruise ship uh, for CBS." Oh my god! I'm like, of all the things you guys have done, and I looked it up this morning. I had no idea what it's this actually was. for Lifetime. It was Lifetime. Well, the CBS. Jeez, it, it, he, I can't believe he's gonna. Well, it was love, love for sale. For those that don't know, sale, I, sale, S A I L. Yeah, and he mentioned that you don't have to talk about you don't want to, but that's I'll, the, that's I'll, the I'll, one thing I'll talk. I'd about rather it. talk about million second quiz, I think. But, but let's talk about love for sale for a second. Um, my first co EP credit. Thank you, Sandy Varro. Um, we the show was created. The re, here's where the CBS reference comes. From. Nancy Tellum, right? Nancy Tellum creates this show with Deb Newmeyer. They're good friends. Um, Deb is back out on the single scene, and the original concept for Love for Sale was Cougar Cruise, that, and that's what it was called. Uh, and we had signed up Norwegian Cruise Line because we had a relationship with them from Undercover Boss. They, of course, were. Very uneasy about the title Cougar Cruise. Well, first Norwegian Norwegian is like, well, we can't have we can't have live animals on on cruise ships. That that wouldn't be safe. I'm sure I'm sure it took some cultural explanation of what this all was. Yeah, and then once they figured out what we were referring to, they they any title but Cougar Cruise, please, was sort of where we left that uh, uh, post contract. Um, but we got on this cruise ship to make the pilot. And it's me, Eli, and, and, and Nancy, and Deb, and there was a lot of... Have you ever made a show on a cruise ship? No. It's, um, it's, it, it's its own special challenge. It sounds like hell. And it was a pilot, so we really didn't like know exactly how to make this show. That's one of the... This was piloted, and then it went to series? Yes. So we went out to sea just to make a pilot, and then I stupidly got back on the boat once it got greenlit, and then went and made the show. But for the pilot, there was a really interesting... So we're out at sea, we're making this pilot. We're fi I think this is what Eli is referring to. We are filming a scene uh, between the cougars and their cubs, <laughs> and... Eli, somehow, you know, internet was very spotty out on the cruise ship, and we weren't getting any messages or emails, but somehow, for some reason, Eli manages to get a text from his brother. And the text is, we got Osama bin Laden. The president is about to go on TV and talk about it. Eli shows me the text. You know, we're sitting there on set. We got the IFBs. We're staring at the monitors. We turn to each other. We're like, hey, this is a, this is a historic moment. So we're going to... So we left the set of Cougar Cruise. We went to my room. We turned on the television. We watched Obama make the speech about having captured and killed Osama bin Laden. We shared a cigarette. We fist bumped to America. And then we left and we went back to making Cougar Cruise the pilot. And that was... It was a special moment for me and Eli in the middle of making that totally ridiculous and silly pilot. All right, Aaron, how many years ago was it when IPC was formed? Pop quiz. When, uh, well, when, it was 2016, so it was seven right. years ago. It Almost seven years to the day. Correct. On January 19th, 2016. Oh, you did some research. The announcement comes out that you guys are leaving all three and forming IPC. This is after, of course, I probably gave you some great advice at Islands. No doubt. 
early into this, I feel like very early into this process, and tell me if I'm wrong, this is where the Leah Remini meeting must take place very early into the formation and announcement of the company, correct? Yes, it was about, well, it was at, it was several months in, but okay. it was in that first year and, right. uh, and, and, and what a meeting that was. By the way, I mean, like, not to jump ahead, we're going to talk all about Scientology in a second, but I think if you gave people like a pop quiz, like, how many years do you think IPC was around before CORE acquired them? I don't think most people would realize it was only two and a half years. Yeah. Because you guys announced January 2016 and the announcement of CORE, which we know when the announcement comes out, there's been months and months and months leading up to that in private. Correct. The announcement comes out 2018 in August. So literally almost exactly two and a half years from announcement to announcement. Dude, that is a historic run. You guys must have had so much volume. And keep in mind, it takes two and a half years just to get one show. I know. From idea to actually on air. And somehow you guys were able to grow a company and have enough volume of things in the works to sell within two and a half years. Blows my mind. I never, like, I guess I just didn't process how quick that window was. Well, just to go down that tributary for one second, it's a little bit of what you were referring to earlier about adapting and pivoting to the business. Or, God forbid, maybe being out ahead of it and helping to kind of push the business in a certain direction. But when we left all three, inspired by our experience making that documentary feature, this was, you know, I think Chef's Table existed and The Jinx had been on HBO, which I think were watershed moments in and, terms of premium content. And making a murderer, maybe? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Not at the time that we had yes. decided to leave and form IPC. Right. By the time we started IPC, yes, I think Making a Murderer had come out. But I would count that as as the, the third show in, in that sort of premium watershed uh, uh, moment. And, and so we were able to... You know, we had just enough kind of dock street cred, to, but we were also this, we were reliable deliverers of hundreds of hours of unscripted content to all these buyers that were also trying to make the pivot into more elevated premium content. And we became a good bridge between where the business was and where it was going. And the streamers were showing up and they had their checkbooks out. And we started making premium content, and the Leah Remini Scientology show was a pretty good example of a, a, an elevated, unscripted show, but was commercially very successful. Won awards, but had lots of eyeballs. And that premium, yet commercial... And made headlines. And made headlines. And that, that became our brand, yeah. in a way, at that perfect time, and we really rode that wave. We had written a business plan that had us, you know, after eight years, you know, on your Excel spreadsheet, like, oh, we're going to have 20 series after eight years. And I think by the end of year two, we had 18. That's unbelievable. And it was crazy. And it, and I mean, it was fun and but, exhilarating. But, but for it you, was, I was thinking about this because yeah. I was thinking the volume must have been nuts for the, for the sale of the company to come that soon. But for you, how do you manage... And how do you still do this? Manage the volume game versus the attention to detail. Because you are an attention to detail guy. Yes. You do have a filmmaker's eye. And it's got to be really hard for you to know you've got, you know, close to 18 series running through a building. But you also are a granular human being when it comes to what you put your name on and what you guys produce. So it's got to come with. Well, that's the, that, that is the rub, right? You know, that, that how do you maintain a certain level of quality control that is very important to me as a filmmaker and still run a business at scale. And so um, the first thing you need is a great team. And we started building that exceptional yeah. team. And so, it, you know, I, I, I wouldn't ever pretend for a second that it was me and Eli, you know, maintaining that, that quality control by ourselves. It was something I insisted upon and then hired a bunch of people, you know, in, in, in that sort of image. Hey, we're going to make lots of stuff, but we're going to make it at the highest professional level. And nothing's going out the door that we're embarrassed by even a little bit. And if we have to hold a cutback and lose a little bit of money to polish it up or, or, or crack the story or fix the problem in Act 3, we're going to do that because that's our reputation. And all you have really is your reputation. And so that has always been really important to us. And, and yeah. And it's a challenge, you know, yeah. and you you want to lavish love and, and attention on 
all of your children, and sometimes that's not realistic, but it was really important for a, a production company that was so young you know, and so early on in its life cycle to not disappoint and to prove to the buyers that you could live up to the promises that you're making. And that really starts by building a great team. And we had a great team then, and we've continued to build on that great team. And we have a great team too. I think we have the best team in the business that knows how to do exactly what you're referring to. Hey, let's make premium content. Even an, uns- you might it might seem like a, you know, like a run-of-the-mill dating show, but we're gonna make it. Uh, uh, we're gonna make it special. We're gonna we're give gonna, it a look. We're gonna give it a look. That show is gonna be called Indian Matchmaking, and it's gonna be documenting something real and authentic that is happening, whether our cameras are there or not. And it's going to look like a premium documentary, even though at the heart it is a show about people looking for love. Um, but so for IPC, Indian matchmaking, that's a dating, that's our version. Selena plus chef, another great case study of this. You guys took what it was a simple, like what dump and stir type show. And it looks completely elevated from what came before it in the genre. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, um, I thought I would go my entire career without making a cooking show and I was totally okay with that. Uh, but I got a, yeah, I got a phone call in the early days of the pandemic, um, we had a pre-existing relationship with Selena Gomez. Um, we had made a a six-part series about the immigration crisis. That's right for Netflix called "Living Undocumented," which I co-directed, and. So Selena really trusted us. That was the first nonfiction show she had ever put her name on. Mm. She had EP'd 13 Reasons Why. So Netflix had this relationship with her on the scripted side. uh, But she had never done it for a nonfiction property. And the immigration issue was something that was important to her personally. uh, And something her fans were looking for her to comment on. And so she signed on and and we pitched and sold that show together and then made that show together and that was a really positive experience for both her and us and it kind of bonded us together and so when the pandemic hit I got a call from Amanda Kogan who was her unscripted agent at the time and she said hey so and when I say that like it was if it wasn't March 2020, it was April. Like it was like yeah. three weeks into this pandemic that no one understood. And we're all trapped inside our houses, fearing death. And she said, you know, Selena's stuck at home and she'd love to like eat healthier and sort of learn how to cook better. And she's living there with her grandparents and a couple of friends and she wants to do something. Can you come up with a cooking show for her? And I, my first question was for, you know, for her to be on camera. And she said, yes. And so I, that, you know, the idea that Selena was going to star for the first time and be in every frame of an unscripted television show was a, an incredible opportunity that I was not going to mess up. So I came up with a cooking show and somehow we got that on the air within weeks and we had to invent our own covid safety protocols at the time and you had a partner in hbo max that was just as hungry to get their not at the time was just as hungry to get their nonfiction on the air as as you guys were yes and massive credit to julie st aubin and jen o'connell who believed that they weren't really looking for a cooking show or a celebrity cooking show but they really wanted Selena and they trusted us and they gave us an opportunity to do something a little bit different and by the way Selena Gomez, as is well known, is immunocompromised. So creating COVID protocols wasn't just about being safe for everyone, including our own crew. It was about, you know. That's right. Not killing Selena Gomez. (laughs) (laughs) And and I wasn't going to be the producer to kill Selena Gomez. And so we were extra careful and she was wonderful as a partner in sort of pioneering what 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 that show could become Uh, let's go back a sec can i get water of course yeah go ahead uh leah remini right scientology in the aftermath i can't i'm just gonna stall here while aaron walks across this very long conference room to get water out of the tank that real screen has provided us but i can't imagine what the interview process was 
like sitting in front of Leah Remini as she vets producers, as she grills people on who am I going to trust with this mammoth, mammoth show taking on this giant, giant institution who can come after you in a number of ways, legally, personally, professionally, you name it. And I, I can't imagine the conversations you and Eli must have had as a new company, putting yourselves out there and thinking, oh, do we even want to take them on? What is this going to mean for us? Are they going to show up outside of our house? We're going to have families. Do we want the people in our lives to go through this as well? So like, talk me through first the Leah vetting, and then let's talk about the process of actually making that show and what you guys had to face. But let's talk with the first Leah meeting, I guess. Brian Spicer, your Look at that. Uh, Look at regular... That. He's, uh, he's been on the show before. Did you yeah, know that? Yeah, I heard. I, I heard several times. Multiple times. Yes. He's great. He's fantastic. Yeah. I, li- I like having people return sometimes. You're, you're, yes, your recurring guest, Brian Spicer, um, who is a dear, dear friend of mine, uh, one of my closest friends um, in the world, called me. Um, he was an agent at APA at the time. He was Leah Remini's agent. And he said, hey, you know Leah Remini from King of Queens, you know, sitcom star. Um, She had had her own reality show previously about her family and her life. And he said she's looking to do – she had written a New York Times uh, uh, bestseller uh, called Troublemaker, which were about her experiences. And she thought that was going to be – her statement on her experience in Scientology, but it was really just the beginning. There was so much that she started to learn about what was really going on inside of Scientology after having written the book. And so she was hungry to share more. And they had already started talking to buyers. Originally, it was maybe going to be a two-hour special on her time in the Sea Org. I mean, there were different sort of ideas floating around. Uh, and he said, you want to come in and, you know, I trust you. You make this kind of premium content. You know, you guys have the filmmaking chops to pull this off. Um, she's meeting with a few people. I want you and Eli to be, you know, one of the companies that she meets with. Come on in and, and, and see her. So we went into the conference room at APA. It's me, Eli, Brian Spicer, and Leah Remini. That's it. That's it. Sitting around a table. And, uh, we're talking about, you know, we, we had, even in that room, we had started brainstorming ideas on how to turn it into a real series. We realized there was a lot of content there. It was way beyond her brief experiences in the Sea Org. And we thought we would learn a lot more about Scientology making the show. And so we just felt like there was a lot of story there and it was more than a two hour special. And so we had a great creative conversation and kind of got to the end of the meeting. It felt like, Leo was comfortable with us about about taking the leap and, and and making the show with us and we had just opened the doors to our company pretty much as as you noted and we had private equity backers and we and Scientology is uh you know somewhat of a fearsome they have a fearsome reputation at least uh, and they they were they they and a combative one. And we saw what Alex Gibney went through, you know, making going clear. And really, anyone else that's ever tried to report or publish anything on that organization. And Eli wondered out loud to me in the meeting in front of Leah, "Hey, should we maybe have a quick conversation with our attorney? Should we give a heads up to our investors because we might be inviting?" a lot of uh, intimidation and legal letters to these right. private equity guys that, right. you know, we're happy for us to make whatever we wanted, but like maybe we ought to give them a heads up that this cra- we're about to go on this crazy ride. And he was just kind of wondering out loud about that. And Leah interrupted and said, oh, so are you guys pussies? Uh, are, you, are you afraid to make the show? Uh, because if you have to check with anyone, then I don't know that you're the type of guys that I want to work with. Wow. And Eli turned to, we were just stunned and, 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 and just, you know, taken aback a little bit. And Eli turned to me and he said, uh, are we pussies? Uh, (laughs) we, we had a moment where we kind of wondered about whether, whether she had a point and, uh, 
and that diffused it in the room a little bit um and we ultimately decided that we weren't um and we went forward and made the show but that was a great first experience with leah remini i mean if that 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 set was the a, tone that set the tone by the way and she she had by the way she had me on her podcast uh, oh, uh, yeah, and uh, and prompted me to tell that story as well. So um, I feel comfortable saying it here. Okay, so two and a half years after launching IPC, Core Media acquires you. Now, again, this is the studio behind American Idol. So you think you can dance? They already have fantastic companies already inside Core at the time, and you in this new role what was the new role as it as industrial forms talk me through this it was basically an aqua hire you know core yeah. uh, oh i've never heard that before an aqua hire well so the the first time i heard that term was when it happened okay. to me i didn't know what it meant either i guess it's like an acquisition and a hire wait can i tell you something else i learned at real screen this year yes in my sit down with cj uh-huh. we've all heard the expression something is a mop right yes when something gets pitched a lot yes it's a mop yeah most overpitched or most often pitched. That's what it's, you didn't know what it stood for. I didn't know it was an acronym. By the way, I didn't know this. By the way, does anyone know what a what what pod what a pod deal means? Do you know that that do you know if pod is an acronym? Because I've heard producer overall deal or production overall deal. I thought it was just a pronunciation for like production company. Like I thought it was a quicker way to say production company. I just pod, got but, but there's pod. no R in it. It's P-O-D. no, I know, but I just assumed it's even even more even more efficient that way. I. I yeah, producer overall so deal. I never you, thought of that. I yes. Yeah. So, well, now you well, Look and now we're, we're we're doing the glossary. Okay. So aqua hire, aqua hire. So they needed what Core wanted was a premium nonfiction company, which was IPC. They didn't have that in the group. They had an amazing company in Sharp Entertainment, an amazing company in B Seventeen. They had Nineteen Entertainment, which which was was the American Idol and So You Think You Can Dance label, but they didn't have anyone making premium nonfiction. So they wanted IPC, but they also had no creative leadership. I mean, it was essentially, they had a wonderful chairman named Dennis Miller, but they didn't have anyone, and they had some great lawyers and accountants. They had business figureheads, they, but, yes, but no exactly. creative face to the company to run it day to day and to grow it and so they want and so they also wanted executives that had experience overseeing or a portfolio of nonfiction companies which is essentially what Eli and I had from our days at all three media America so talk about unique circumstances the idea that they could get IPC but that we had also had this previous experience was 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 very fortuitous and so there, hence the aqua hire. They bought IPC, but they in part bought it to get us to then run core. We renamed it Industrial Media, um, but we still ran IPC. IPC day-to-day. stayed a label. So that began. Yeah, IPC remained a thriving label underneath the Industrial Media banner, and that began. Uh, what has been now a four to five year journey for me of having two full time jobs uh, uh, simultaneously because we were running the parent company while still running IPC day to day. And how was the name industrial media thought of? Who, who's, I mean, whose idea bet, was this? I mean, I, you know, we we worked with some excellent brand folks at UTA because they were a minority owner of right. of core at the time um, and we had some of our own ideas and we made an endless number of lists we wanted to come up with a a company that sounded big and impressive that you had to purchase one day <laughs> so so industrial media but, sounded like that type of company but ipc was kind of that too right i know that eli wanted no 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 i mean in terms of like sounding very very impressive from day one yes like when when the intellectual property company or corporation corporation right which it wasn't technically was not a corporation a corporation that's right that's not legally anyways but yes intellectual property corporation wow that sounds like a company that owns a lot of ip we did not uh that was like you know really big which is like of middling size uh and that you had to purchase for a lot of money yeah. one day. So that 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 was uh that was Eli's design see, on on IPC, and we kind of replicated that with industrial media. See, this just shows how I just don't think I don't think like successful people think because 
that was a vision for why you name your company that. Do you know how I arrived at Main Event Media? You're huge into wrestling? Yes. So I sat down one <laughs> night. I had to think of a name. I sat down one night, and I just started writing down a bunch of things that like I cherish or loved from like my childhood or like passions, hobbies, whatever. That's not a, that's not a bad way to brainstorm. And I wrote down things like like Debloom because there's the Debloom in, in Goonies. I'm like, oh, could I be Debloom? I'm like, no, that's hard to spell. Like, and then like, and then for one time, I I was thinking I would name the company Vaudeville. Interesting. But it turns out that was Darren Brown's company. Oh. So. I wasn't going to do that. Huh. And vaudeville stood for like variety. And I like, I love like the Marx brothers. What about like, like carnival Barker productions. <laughs> well that, see that would have like a negative connotation of like, sure. I'm just a, sa- oh, I'm just a, like a what about Yiddish theater <laughs> productions. <laughs> so, so like I wrote down, I think main event I wrote down cause I think it was like Saturday night's main event and right. wrestling minute. And I thought, and I was like, Oh wait, that has a double meaning. Like main event sounds like you do big things. Yes. Right? And the things you do are like the highlight of a slate. Like big live events. That's like right. Jesse Collins should have called his company main event. Look at that. Right? And you should have called your company Jesse Collins How? Entertainment. Because that Jesse Collins on the podcast. Now I noticed yeah, when we'll, I reviewed we'll, your podcast we'll, we'll, list. <laughs> you know, he was a great guest, Aaron. I'm he, sure. He was great. I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, didn't think, yeah, look, didn't think, I, didn't think give, like a would-be mogul. Let me give credit to Eli. I mean, I was interested in making great content that was going to somehow, uh, in all earnestness, reflect or comment on the human condition. That's what drove me. That is really why I get out of bed in the morning. Eli was very driven by the idea that that company would also be successful and make some money, God forbid. And so... You know, naming it the Intellectual Property Corporation, I have to give him credit for that because his design was we're going to build. We he knew maybe more than me that we were going to build this great shop and make great content, uh, but with the idea that we were going to sell it one day and actually make a buck or two. Um, and ironically, or coincidentally, I should say, my father is an intellectual property attorney, and so I should have thought of it myself but I grew up you know my I grew up as a child I didn't know that this wasn't normal but like when my little when my big sister and I used to make these little you know drawings that they you stick on the refrigerator that you know my dad would make us at a young age at like four years old he would make us write our names at the bottom with the date and a c in the circle so it was copyrighted even like our chicken scratch drawings that were in, awful in that case, were indecipherable to, to to adults in case in case a neighborhood punk wanted to claim your work just wanted us to make sure that we knew we had to copyright our original work from a very young age and so i and i didn't realize how unusual that was until i became an adult so i should have thought of the name intellectual property corporation but credit to holzman for that well look 2018 august is the announcement of core acquiring ipc industrial is formed and 2022, so less than two years later, Sony now inqui- acquires the entire industrial Correct. portfolio. And here we are. And that was also an aqua hire. Right. So here we are. It is, you are president of IPC, but you are also co-president of Sony Nonfiction. Correct. How's that going for you? Two jobs still. How's that going for you? Well, and I, now I, you are now like, it's the most corporate job you've probably ever had. By I should say in terms of processes, because Sony is one of the most traditional founding father studios in the business, right? So this has to be different than merging into whatever the core landscape was at the time. This has to be a whole other level of corporateness that, because you've never worked at a network, right? So this is right. this is the closest thing to it, right? Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, I had good training on how to have two full-time jobs already. Right. So, because I had done the industrial job and the IPC job for three and a half years. So that part of it wasn't such a shock to the system. But yes, you know, becoming a studio executive um, has been more of a transition than, let's say, you know, helping run industrial media. Um, And we're only, you know, eight months into it. We have wonderful, friendly, motivated colleagues inside of Sony that are so excited about having us there and helping us grow a world-class nonfiction business. And they are supporting us in all the right ways. They are giving us the autonomy we insisted on in all the right ways. And so they've been wonderful. But you're right. They're not 
private equity backers that you meet with once a quarter and talk about your numbers and your strategy. They are studio executives. They are down the hall. You see them and talk to them every week, all the sometimes every day. They've been an institution for decades and decades. They're and you, great and, at what they do. And you're the new kids. And we're and we're the new kids on the block. And they really are great at what they do. And Sony made a strategic decision not to have a streamer several years ago and that they wanted to be an independent supplier to the entire business you know a sort of arms dealer in the content wars and they didn't want to have any conflicts about who they ever did business Mm. with and that mentality and philosophy matched perfectly with how we ran industrial media so it's it it was and is a really good cultural fit because we're we're aligned in that sort of agenda sony is really the last truly independent studio in all of hollywood yeah that that isn't worried about self-dealing or being able you know is our is a competitor going to buy a show from us if that's you know putting money in their competitors pockets because even Lionsgate is is stars right so they really are really everyone has a network except for Sony and I I think that fierce independence has served them well and 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 it just made sense that we would join that team are you on the lot so we're on the lot how great is that but also still with our IPC offices in Van Nuys so I go to which were two the offices. which were the offices of Buna Murray. That's right. Uh, historic the, offices, the famous historic offices. You know, it's funny. We we we. I current. You know, in, in addition to having an office on the lot, I sit in Jonathan Murray's old office. Oh, you do. But even better than that, I had him on the podcast. Right. I I, I noticed that uh, early days. He was one of your first guests, yeah. and rightfully so. Uh, but we also, you know, before in the eighties, um, those were the Marvel offices. I did not know that. And, and, and I, and I, and I don't just sit in Jonathan Murray's old office. I sit in Stan Lee's old office. Oh, come on. And if you go, if you come to our building and you go to one of the downstairs bathrooms, you will, we didn't change this. You will still see there is. Uh, Spider-Man red colored tile still in one of those bathrooms. It was on more of the building, but we kind of gave it a facelift and we made it IPC. Uh, Boona Murray had preserved more of it, but we wanted to keep some vestige of that historic era. And so we kept that Spider-Man red tile in one of the downstairs bathrooms. I had no idea that was ever the Marvel space. And the fact that you inherited an office of Stan Lee and Jonathan Murray I mean, you just got to be, I, I would never want to come into the Sony lot. I would just want to be sitting in, in that office all day. It happens to be a lot closer to where I live in Los Feliz. So I oh yeah, slightly prefer the commute to the IPC offices. I don't, but you know, I'm used but, to schlepping to Culver City for my studio Lambert days. So. But, but this job for you, in terms of your role as co-president of Sony non- Nonfiction, it's the same job because you're still working with all the industrial family members like Sharp and others that you did before, but you've now inherited this giant portfolio of IP and shows that Sony already had going, like the Shark Tanks of the world and, and things of that nature, right? Yeah. Well, we also, though, once we took over industrial, we added, uh, I think, four companies um, right. and, uh, uh, before we had sold to Sony, mm. uh, we did some, some JVs and, and some pod deals mm. and launched four new labels even prior to that. So we walked into Sony yeah. with a total of eight companies. We have since added a ninth, but it has not been announced yet. Um, and yeah, Sony has, um, an exciting library of IP and, and we're now working with, with, uh, Barry Posnick and, and our other Sony colleagues, um, and, and ABC of course on Shark Tank. And that's really exciting. It, it, it's a little bit absurd to have stumbled into some of these giant franchises. Oh, I know, dude, when I, I when you were making American Idol during the pandemic and it was that season where it was like all on screens and whatnot. Like I remember looking at your Insta stories and posts thinking, Oh my God, what he is experiencing right now and being at the epicenter of making big broadcast television during the pandemic. But for one of the giant legacy shows, I was like, I can't imagine how much he's learning right now, even as much as you've done. No, of course. Like walking into what is already a machine and a family that like have done that show forever. Yes. You walking and then having to problem solve 
how now to reinvent American Idol of all shows during a pandemic. I can't imagine what that season was. Well, I will. Um, you know, look, luck is a huge part of this business. And so stumbling onto some of the biggest shows in our genre ever is just, uh, I don't know, uh, hard work meets preparation meets luck. You're going to uh, love it even more as a parent uh, because, <laughs> because eventually you're going to be able to like, bring your kids to those sets. And that might be one of the most gratifying things. But ever. in fairness, Fremantle produ- physically yes, produces that show. Yeah. And huge credit to Trish Kahane, who was the showrunner at that time, um, making that show. And, and, her, and her, her right hand, Megan Wolflick, who now show runs the series, for pulling off that feed. And I was really able to watch and learn from them. Right. We actually handle what we inherited um is Simon Fuller's legacy on that show right. which is the music half wow. so the part that we're responsible for is launching the music careers of the contestants coming off of American Idol so is there synergy there now with Sony music or no potentially okay. potentially i mean we want to be free obviously to make the right deals for the show and we always put the show first and if that means um, building a relationship with Sony Music because Sony Music thinks that that's interesting to them, we're all for it. But I think, you know, the first order of business always is protect the show and whatever's best for 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 American Idol. But yeah, we handle the music. I had to learn the music business. Right. Went uh, uh, once we took over industrial media and um, and and yeah, was able to see and learn and observe and help maybe in a small way. Uh, see Fremantle pull off that incredible feat of making that show through COVID. Now, on a much smaller scale, we did it with Selena Plus Chef, and right. we had started doing it with other shows, but a show on the scale of American Idol, being able to make that through COVID was uh, was certainly an incredible feat, and Fremantle deserves uh, most of the credit for that. You mentioned Simon Fuller and like inheriting his holdings. Did you ever ask why it was ever called 19 Entertainment? No. I still don't know. I didn't know there was going to be math on this. <laughs> um, you've stumped me. I'm sure there's a great reason, and we can Google it later, or we could Google it right now, but uh, I'm not sure why he named it Okay, that. I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. I think main event was his backup idea. Um, he realized vaudeville was taken. Um, and uh, it's probably just his birthday. Yeah, it's probably it might, just his birthday. It it's probably might something be. Boring, but I've always wondered that. Dude, anything else you want to get off your chest before we wrap this up? I just want to thank you for finally having me on this podcast. Um, look, I, I, I love this business. I'm really passionate about, about making nonfiction content, and I came to it in, in sort of a less traditional way. Um, but I'm so happy that we're all here and we get to do what we do for a living. It's, it's kind of a crazy fun job, and sometimes you got to pinch yourself and, and take stock of that. And uh, um, and there are some days where where it's 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 cultural whiplash. You know, I remember I was making a show for Nat Geo, and I flew to Houston to I was personally interviewing former Secretary of State James Baker mm. in the morning. We shot that in the morning. I got on a plane to go back to L.A. And later that afternoon, I was at Paris Hilton's house showing her the rough cut of the sizzle for what became the documentary feature we made, This is Paris. And the idea that I was with Secretary of State James Baker in the morning and Paris Hilton later that afternoon is a good uh representative example of how crazy and fun and weird and wild this job can be and I love it. Did and you I'm inform, just so happy to be able to do it. Did you inform James Baker of who your afternoon meeting was? I specifically did not tell him who I was meeting with in the afternoon and I chose not to go into what it was like meeting him when I was with Paris Hilton. That was probably the right play. I think so. Hall of Famer Aaron Sedman, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me.